Hello, Monetization Nation. Today, I'm joined by Andrew Romans, who is a venture capitalist, an entrepreneur, and an advisor for governments and corporations on corporate venture capital programs. He's the CEO and general partner of 7BC Venture Capital, and also the co-founder of Rubicon Venture Capital, a venture capital fund focusing on investing in and supporting artificial intelligence, fintech, and software infrastructure startups. By the time he was 28 years old, he had raised more than $48 million for tech startups he founded. He's also the author of three books, including The Entrepreneurial Bible to Venture Capital and hosts the podcast, Fireside with the Venture Capitalist. Thank you so much for joining us today, Andrew. Hey, Nathan. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Can you start off by sharing with us something that you are super passionate about? Um, I guess it would be entrepreneurship. So, I mean, um, I think being an entrepreneur is not always a choice. You know, like your mom wants you to be an accountant or a doctor or a dentist and you just do what you do. Um, so I think that that's probably like my biggest passion. Within that, I start getting excited by some things that I believe are tectonic shifts in, in the kind of once in a generation shifts in technology. So I kind of believe that we're still cave people in a cave and we're about to get out of the cave and get enlightened. And it's so frustrating to see how things are done so foolishly. And, and technology can address that in entrepreneurs you know, to make that happen. So that's the real area of passion, making all that happen. What do you think is the biggest tectonic shift that's transforming the business world today? Well, I think, you know, we had the internet and that was a big deal, right? Just getting us that connectivity. But now I think that we've got, we're at a point where we can take data. There's data that's on Google, there's data that's on the internet, but there's also data sets that any company or individual has. And you talk about monetization is how to get your data unsiloed safely out of wherever it's locked up and then clean it and wash it and structure it so you can run it through human designed artificial intelligence algorithms with machine learning and real artificial intelligence to leverage that data to do something instantaneously because you know, a machine can read a thousand pages in a second and continuously, you know, or collapse the time it takes to do something. So this kind of marrying your data and everybody else's data to be able to create workflows of doing things so much more efficiently, that's a big deal. Like an example is, uh, if I don't know if anyone ever read Liar's Poker, greatest book, it's like 90 pages. And then that same guy wrote Moneyball which became a movie with Brad Pitt in yeah, it. I love that movie. Yeah, and so if you think of like, it used to be some old man in a mustache sitting on the chain link fence watching some high school kids play baseball, you know, with chewing tobacco everywhere. And that's how they were sourcing their people. Now imagine like self-driving autonomous vehicle technology or Chinese Communist Party surveillance stuff that watches every video of every kid that ever played soccer from Latin America to Spain and they can continuously monitor not just three stats on the player, but like every elbow recovery and like all that. So like Moneyball for that industry, someone's going to seriously do that. Maybe Mark Cuban. And it'll be so <laughs> hard to compete with someone that's doing Moneyball with real technology at scale. And now apply that to getting a mortgage on or a refi of your house or how you buy and sell a home or any big industry, even you know, anything at all. So I think that 
you know, there is ability for new companies to completely dominate industries and be the next Amazon. And there's ability for corporations to end up like Kmart getting crushed by Walmart to see how corporates can be, you know, a beneficiary of Moneyball for everything. I love it. Okay, so to just restate really quick for our audience, you're saying that the one of the biggest tectonic shifts you're seeing today is the ability to to leverage the data we already have, marry it with other data, use AI to make sense of that, and then use that to leapfrog the competitors and and create great monetization. That's right. And I think that there's also just a simple can I automate this workflow? with technology. Yeah. Now that might be you send your grandpa into a nuclear reactor rappelling down like Tom Cruise to fix something. Well, that's stupid, right? I mean, you should have a drone to defuse a bomb or do that kind of job. And the <laughs> same thing of like, I want you to work in coal. I want your kids to work in coal. I want your grandkids to work in coal. You know, get us, what do you want us to get black lung? Like there's a whole bunch of tech that can just be applied to automating anything, you know? Yeah. And if you automate stuff, and you know, if some startup is automating what it's like to get a mortgage, it starts off as 90 days, then it gets to 60 days. All of a sudden the customer is a little happier. You should yeah. be able to just put your you know, face recognition in your phone and it tells you right away, Bank of America is giving you a mortgage and here's the deal just for you, right? And it, that's way cooler than having 90 pages of documents and people ready to get divorced just while trying to get a mortgage. So you can apply that to the DMV voting, anything. Can you tell me your story about how you became an expert in venture capital? Well, you know, I had a couple of startups in high school that didn't need any investors. So I think it's great if you can get a good company without any investors, who needs them? But sometimes you need a lot of capital to build all this AI and hire data scientists and this kind of stuff too. So I ended up with a business um, when I was 25 that was making a lot of money with almost no investors. I did have angel investors. And then it be, then I realized I needed like $50 million. And so I got 25 million in vendor financing from Lucent. And then that was contingent upon getting 5 million of cash equity financing from an investor. So it wasn't that hard to find the VCs. I just went to the National Venture Capital Association website and started finding them. Lawyers started introducing us. And then um, I managed to get a $15 million Series A. And so that was when I was 27. And then you know, we went on from there. And if you're, if you're speaking, if I do a lot of public speaking, I always have. And if you're on stage at some event for your industry and you say like a slide, you know, we raised all this money, people are gonna line up in the audience to speak to you after you get off stage saying, oh, could you forward my magic beans project to these VCs that you know, obviously you know them because they funded you. And so deal flow starts to happen, but to not eat up too much time, I raised money for a number of companies that I founded. That's like more than 300 million. So that's a lot of meetings to get that done. So I've met a lot of worthless roadkill VCs and some good ones along the way. And then I, uh, after the dot-com crash, VCs asked me to help some of their portfolio companies raise money from other VCs because all of a sudden it wasn't so easy just yep. to be young and dumb to raise money like me. And so I, and they knew I understood how to do it because I'd been through it, you know, all the legals and ins and outs. And then I, I knew their CEOs already. So I started joining boards and being a professional dirty investment banker that helps you raise more money and getting paid on that. 
And so my VC network and experience, you know, I would have like three or four companies at once and having 60 to 80, 200 meetings each. It was just nonstop, you know, dealing on fund, guy finder, trying to fundraise, you know, VC trying to invest in observing all of that. Then I started something called the Founders Club, which is, it used to be a taboo to sell any of your founder shares before the definitive IPO or M&A liquidity event to the company. That's changed now, thank God. But I would get founders that had raised money from top VCs to put up to 10% of their shares into the Founders Club as a pool. And I would issue them with ownership in the pool, in the fund, the equity exchange fund. And we'd all go out to dinner and say, you all own part of each other's companies, help each other be prosperous. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So, so, you know, like you have all your eggs in one basket, especially if you're biotech, you know, one of them is going to become Viagra or the vaccine and the other one's not, you know, and the VCs are diversified. So they're all set. And here you are on your fifth wife or husband, you know, as a failed entrepreneur trying to make it work and your VCs are pushing you to the edge to return their funds. There's a lot, there's a lot of stuff there, but um, I had a lot of experience with venture capital financings and they would all call me on a Sunday morning saying, Andrew, you own founder stock in my company. And so I trust you more than my VC who has a bit of a conflict of interest of, he wants me to sell my company so he can raise his next fund or her next fund where I just want to get out of this thing safely with my interests. So I heard a lot of stories and I saw a lot of things happen. And then people, I would then tell people, well, the way to get through this is you get rid of this person and do that and blah, blah, blah. And people would say, you should write a book. And so it got to the point that people were saying, you should write a book like every day. And I, I used to be a little more colorful with jokes and metaphors and things that probably get you in trouble or canceled these days. And so people are like, dude, you're funny and you're, you're giving me great advice. You should write a book. And so the book kind of was born out of all of that expertise. And then I started my own VC fund of Rubicon Venture Capital, which we've now rebranded as 7BC Venture Capital. So, you know, there's experience from doing. At some point, being old has something going for it. And all those good things you have going for you, what is the greatest home run you've hit? I would say fund two. Fund, you know, fund one was a, a 5X cash on cash return. So if you put $100,000, you got 500K back. If you did a million, you got 5 million. Fund two is going to clear more than 10 million, uh, which, is, which I think is pretty damn good for the venture capital industry. And, um, you know, I guess I feel good about our ability to take companies like Superhuman from, uh, I, I don't want to really advertise that I do this, but every now and then we'll fund a company that hasn't started yet. You know, like when it's just an idea. And Raul came to me, we had funded his cousin and his cousin really liked us. And so his cousin said, you got to make room for these guys in your seed round. And it was about how to help you manage your email. And I get a lot of email. So if this, you know, this podcast could trigger a hundred emails, which could then trigger thousand emails and a year later, another thousand emails. So these guys had a way of really helping you deal with your email. And I love the vision and committed to that one and have been very involved with the company. And I think it's going to be just a multi, multi-billion dollar company. And I'm just happy to make people's lives more Zen and good and help them deal with uh, this important thing, email. Um, what's that so company? Like, what's the name of that company? So we can keep our eyes out for it. Superhuman. Okay. So you can go to superhuman.com 
and join. There's 400,000 people on a wait list. Um, I can get you off the wait list, but uh, there's 400,000 people waiting to pay 30 bucks a month for superhuman email. And, um, you know, if you value one hour a month at being 30 bucks, then you're in the money. For me, it, it reduces my email. Like email was basically not working for me. So I just couldn't, it was just dis disaster. It takes a little time to learn how to use it, but you will become a superhuman if you use it. So that, that's one that I'm really proud of that I really like. And, you know, we're even investing in the company now at a very high valuation. And so we were, we were in that company at a, at a nothing valuation and, and we're in at a higher valuation. Um, but I think we've learned on with the market we're in right now, um, valuations are going up so high that I, we're, we're going to start selling maybe 10% of our position in a company. So Nathan, if you founded a company and we invested a 5 million or 10 million or 30 million valuation, and a year later, Tiger Global is investing 100 million at a pre-money of 500 million, I think we could just return all the money to our investors by selling just 10%. In the past, we were greedy. We wanted to get it all. Like, don't leave any money on the table. Now I'm thinking, put the money back in their pockets, show them that they're up 10X and they've got all their money back and they can re-up and invest in our next fund and become yeah. part of the community. Yeah, that's really smart. Everyone always thinks it's going to go up. Every entrepreneur thinks their business is, is on an upward trajectory and, and sadly, not everybody is, right? The, there's a lot of things that could in that tomorrow. So it's good to get some money off the table. Okay. What's the biggest mistake that you've made or biggest failure from your career? And what'd you learn from it? Well, I guess it's the anti-portfolio stuff. You know, it's like, I didn't understand Twitter. I was like, you know, Hey mom, look, wheels up in LAX. You know, like I was just, you know, I'm more of like, let's write a book. Let's not go like an inch narrow of 140 characters and this kind of MTV culture of ADD, you know, so, you know, I missed, I missed that. I missed, I missed, uh, I missed a bunch of companies, you know? Um, so if you're really active, you're missing a lot. Also, I couldn't convince my, my co-founder at Rubicon to invest in a bunch of things. So like what we missed there of my failure to convince him to fund certain things has been like, you know, it, you know, it, it's like, you know, you could stay up at night thinking about these things. Oh, I could be a philanthropist to this level, you know, had we gotten into those deals, but you got to learn how to just go through a day of combat and not let it get you upset yeah. at all. And then move I think, on. I think like one of the biggest things, and you know, you're talking about, they don't all make it is diversification. I was providing diversification to founders at the founders club when like nobody else really was. And in fact, I remember I was pitching to Kleiner Perkins in the mid 1980s, you know, big VC fund, Don yeah. Valentine and all these guys. And their website, when websites were still new, it said, join the Koretsu, like this Japanese family of companies. And that if you get funded by us, you'll be connected to all these other ones. And I said to them, and I shouldn't have said it, it shows you what an idiot I was back then. But I said to them, you know, so in this Koretsu, do I get ownership? How does that Koretsu work? And they're like, well, you know, we funded Apple, we funded Microsoft, whatever it is, you're part of this group. I said, it looks like you're part of the group, unless I get equity and all those other deals, it's a Kretsu for you and not for me. I'm just your guinea pig bullet, you know? And so I was inspired to say like, we're gonna give a Kretsu for the entrepreneurs. And now I think for our investors, we diversify them in a way that makes it mathematically and statistically less risky than the stock market or real estate or any other asset class, you know? Yeah. 
it's a something that drives me crazy is people are like, yeah, I got a lot of money to invest, but I don't know, man, venture capital sounds really risky. And I'm like, tell me what you're doing with your money. I'm sure it's way riskier than the kind of logical portfolio construction of how we diversify, how we double down, invest in our winners. You know, we're, we're basically legally insider traders, right? You know, like if I fund the Nathan.com website and you tell me, or I introduce you to Telecom Indonesia and they're about to put you on 200 million handsets and you're the king of how to monetize that. Well, Gordon Gecko would call that a buy signal. I should maybe say, well, why don't we do a fundraise right now? Let us lead it and put more money into your company so you can really nail it in Indonesia. You know, that's insider trading, but it's legal because these are privately held companies. Gordon Gecko goes to prison because he flipped out on that blue star or whatever Charlie Sheen got him into in that movie. And that's illegal. So I think what we're doing is, you know, how can you beat Alpha in the public markets in the TV show Billions or the movie Wall Street? You're either breaking the law, you're not Alpha, right? You know, or, or you're Bernie Madoff. And this is, this is a lie. So I think venture capital is like the last bastion of legal, good, positive vibe. We're helping you as much as possible. And we know which ones we can double down and invest in, yeah. you know, or how to get conviction and fund you through a storm. Okay. So to restate there, you're reducing risk because you're diversifying, number one. That's one. But number two, you have a lot more upside than maybe a, a an established company on the stock market has because there's so much room for growth. Even if there is more risk, the upside is so much higher that as long as you're diversified, you know, you can probably see a much greater return on average. Yeah. I mean, if you look at it in math, I mean, you know, we invested into Daily Harvest at a $30 million valuation for the first time. And their revenues, which are publicly disclosed for 2020, were $250 million, which was more than doubling revenues from 2019. And they're profitable. So like just on a discounted cash flow, you know, you could play around with what multiple of 250 million to value it at. But, you know, if it was 10X, it's a two and a half billion dollar valuation and we got in at 30. You're not going to get that investing in that company after an IPO, right? No. And so if you diversify across, say, 25 companies with 30% of your fund capital, you're, you can lose eight of them, but four would pay it all back. One, one could be a daily harvest, pay it back multiple times. You should get that money back if you're doing the way we've done in the past and we expect to do in the future. If you then say, okay, I invested in 25 horses, think of it like a horse race, and then five of them are in the lead. One is in the lead, lead horse on revenue. The other one in these monetization is working. You say, never put more than 10% of the fund into one deal. So if yeah. you go all chips in of 10% into your top five horses, you've now got 30% really nicely diversified to ride some winners, make up for your losses. You're, you've got half the money into companies that really look like they're going well, but you're still you know, diversified across those five and how much of the fund it is. So there's diversify one, double down, and a third one which works really well in a bull market or everybody wants to fund a great company in a bear market, like, like, like Google took off in an economic downturn, you're still able to sell maybe 10% of your position when you're 50X up and safely 
it's like getting a fish. Have you ever had a fish on the boat and you didn't have a net or you, you screwed up and it didn't get on the boat or, or onto the shore? Yep. Get that fish on the beach and away from the water, right? Yep. So sometimes you're like, well, it looks awfully good now, but the truth is these people are kind of crazy. There's so many things I, I worry about with that one company. Just say, hey man, you were in at 12 or 30. It's now raising money from Tiger at 500 million. Maybe sell 10% of the position now, get that fish on shore, give all your investors all their money back with a bump for tax. And then say, by the way, what you've got left in the fund is worth this multiple of your check. And don't you like us? Because you got all your money back in two years, you know? Yeah. And so that's three ways of de-risking. Diversify, double down on your winners, and manage the fund like an adult where you return some money before waiting for Sarbanes-Oxley to expire. Can you tell me the difference between venture capital, angel investing, and private equity? Sure. So angel investing typically means an individual accredited investor, so a high net worth rich person who's investing off their own balance sheet. So investing, writing a check out of their savings. Some of them will formalize this with an LLC. So their grandkids have get some of it without tax issues, but it's basically meant to be people investing their own money. Sometimes people call themselves an angel fund and they're actually investing other people's money, but they're just investing early. So you hear people, in my opinion, misuse that term and they're actually a venture capitalist investing other people's money with a management fee and a performance fee or carry, but they're calling themselves an angel. Ron Conway is a great example where he founded SV Angel, Silicon Valley Angel, and he was funding everybody. So he's on like every IPO, just investing in just, just, just three a week, whether he needs a shower or not, cutting these checks, right? And that was other people's money. And then he got tired of it, did so well. He's like, you know what? To hell with all you annoying people, me and my son Topher are just gonna invest our money and so now it's back to angel, super angel. Private equity typically is investing other people's money into when they invest, they typically are acquiring 51% or more of the, of the shares in the company. So there t- there's a change of control when PE, private equity, buys you typically. Now they may club up with a bunch of PE funds and you'll, they'll like get like a billion together with five PEs. They'll borrow 12X that in debt and they'll go buy a telecom operator and then saw it up and they'll sell the yellow pages before the internet because that was considered an annuity. And so they were debt up like crazy. You know, they borrow, so they, they invest a billion, they borrow 12 billion, they buy TeleDenmark in Denmark, the telecom operator, they sell off the... Um, yellow pages, because these guys know that Google's coming for it. And they managed to get their billion back so that, so that they're safe. Now it's just a matter of, do we get into a debt equity swap if we screw up on the payments of the main business? Then they separate broadband and they separate systems integration and they often chainsaw it up. So, v, so PEs will sometimes just, like one of my investors from KKR in London he bought Boots, which is like CVS or Walgreens. Okay. Then later he merged it with Walgreens. The guy has made so much money, it's not even funny. And he's very smart, but he didn't even have to use half of his brain to do this. You know, The key thing 
was raising all that money and then getting the winning bid to buy boots. You know, so, so VCs are, we're buying a minority position. The startup is typically selling between 10% and 33% of the total company when they're raising a single round. So, so VCs are buying a minority. They might take a board seat, but they don't take control of the company at the governance board level or at the, on the cap table, the shareholder structure. Thank you so much, Andrew, for sharing your stories and insights with us today. Here's some of my key takeaways from this episode. Number one, we can reduce the risk of investing by diversifying our investments. Number two, we can double down on our winners to help make sure they succeed. Number three, if we're worried, we can sell a portion to get some money back. Number four, new technology can give us a chance to revolutionize how we do business. We can leverage technology to make our processes faster and simpler. To learn more about or connect with Andrew, you can find him on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. You can visit his website at 7bc.vc. You can also check out his books on amazon.com. And there's links to each of those sites on the blog post for this episode at monetizationnation.com. You can also get my free book about passion marketing and learn how to become a top priority of your ideal customers at passionmarketing.com. You can also subscribe to Monetization Nation on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, our Facebook group, and on your favorite podcast platform. I'd also be very grateful if you commented on, liked, and shared this episode. Thanks for joining me today. I wish you success in your investing. Do you want to become a better digital monetizer? To receive great monetization stories and secrets, please go to monetizationnation.com and join free. And if you liked today's episode, please subscribe to the show and share it.